The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Refining Precision Decisions in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer with Common and Less Common EGFR Mutations, Navigating Testing and Treatment Throughout the Disease Continuum. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DCG 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. I do want to welcome you, though, today in all seriousness to our program of refining precision decisions in non-small cell lung cancer with common and less common EGFR mutations, navigating testing and treatment throughout the disease continuum. Today, we have some distinguished speakers, Dr. Joshua Sabari, Assistant Professor of Medicine at NYU Langard Health at the Perlmutter Cancer Center in New York, and Dr. Alex Spira, who's co-director of the Virginia Cancer Specialist Research Institute and co-chair of the U.S. Oncology Thoracic Research Program from Fairfax, Virginia. My name is Natasha Leo. I'm a medical oncologist from the Princess Margaret Cancer Center in Toronto, Canada. We're going to talk about the importance of genotyping, managing exon 20 EGFR insertion mutant lung cancer, early stage disease, how to manage relapse, which is such an increasing and challenging problem after third generation kinase inhibitors and management of the uncommon EGFR mutations. And the goals are to improve knowledge of some of these common and less common mutations in lung cancer and how they need to drive treatment decisions and improve biomarker testing and targeted therapy selection. So we're going to start with a case. This is a 54-year-old lady. She's a never smoker, and she comes to you for a second opinion. This is a familiar story, I think, to many of you. She's had a cough for several months, been tested for COVID only once. In my practice, it's often five or six times with negative results, tried on an inhaler, tried on antihistamines, and finally some imaging is done. And she's found to have a lung mass on the left side. And on CT imaging, not only has a left lower lobe mass in the lung, but also has two small liver metastases. And on the rest of her imaging, she's got a normal brain scan. Biopsy shows TTF1 positive lung adenocarcinoma. PDL1 expression is 60%. And the standard reflex testing at the institution that she was diagnosed at shows no driver alterations. We'll talk about what that testing is. She has a bit of a cough, which is intermittent. She's good performance status. The previous oncologist that she saw, her main oncologist offered her a checkpoint inhibitor, and she's come to see you about a second opinion and, of course, is very anxious to start therapy. And in terms of her biomarker testing, so she had standard PDL1 tumor proportion score expression. The molecular testing that she had otherwise was PCR test looking at EGFR, BRAF, and KRAS with no alterations identified, and FISH testing for ALK and ROS1 with no rearrangements identified. I'm actually just going to start by asking our faculty members, you know, how often do you see this? How often is this a challenge and that this scenario comes through your door? What would you do? And what are some of the challenges that you've had in terms of getting complete NGS testing and in terms of this question of treatment now versus waiting? Dr. Spire, we're going to start with you. So this is a very common scenario where patients may have gotten incomplete testing. I mean, there's obviously different institutions, community versus academic. I think there's a big difference there. I would do what the other folks here would do, which is get further sequencing. I think that was the majority answer and then instruct the patient to wait a little bit. I think the challenge is, you know, we have Canadian folks here and we have American folks here. And I think there are certain differences with regard to reimbursement for most people in the United States, at least in my experience, and certainly for me, reimbursement is not an issue. The real issue is patient anxiety. These patients 
patients, by the time they walk in the oncologist door, they've been circulating with maybe they have lung cancer or maybe COVID for two months, had a diagnosis of lung cancer and waited two weeks to come see the oncologist. And now you have to wait even more. So there's a lot of education and patient anxiety that I think for me is the most challenging thing to do to take a pause and wait. Yeah, I always talk about the visceral crisis related to disease versus the psychological crisis. And all of our patients are in psychological crisis, right? And they may be in visceral crisis as well. And maybe that's where we may need to initiate chemotherapy and wait for the results. But, you know, oncologists oftentimes are in psychological crisis too. Is the patient going to stay? Are they going to leave me? Is this patient going to, you know, tank out, you know, not do well with therapy? So I think having that discussion with your patient, waiting for the NGS results to get patients the best possible therapy. Yeah. And I will say, you know, the patient's going to stay and leave. And that's obviously a very valid thing. And you'll always find an oncologist that's just going to treat and inform the patient of that. And you can often get burned for trying to do the right thing. Thank you. And, I, you know, as a Canadian, and I think we've got some Canadians in the audience, you know, I think there is a lot of anxiety. I think, though, that we do tend to wait for the NGS results more and the psychological crises. I think it's challenging both for oncologists and patients. And for us in particular, you know, patients take so long to get to us. Molecular testing takes so long. So how do you make sure that your patient doesn't sort of fall off that cliff? And so those are some of the challenges we have. And we heard a bit about earlier today about the interaction between kinase inhibitors and immunotherapy and things to watch for. So, you know, even in the U.S., as a Canadian, I always assume everything works perfectly here, but probably only about half of advanced lung cancer patients get NGS testing done at any point during their journey, and only anywhere from 25 to 35% have those results before they start first-line therapy. And of course, beyond the five targets that our patient had assayed, you know, there are now nine genes where comprehensive testing is very helpful, and of course, this does include complex fusions, as well as some of the harder-to-find mutations, for example, NetXM14 skip mutations, where RNA based testing is often more sensitive. And so it's also very challenging as a consumer of these tests that we really understand what we're testing, how we're testing it, and when we're missing a positive diagnosis in our patients. And then, of course, pdl one expression by immunohistochemistry. So, of course, all of the guidelines now recommend broad, comprehensive NGS panels. And I think we're learning that comprehensive NGS is much better at picking up these rare alterations and complex alterations, whereas PCR-based assays often are faster, cheaper, and to date have required less DNA or less less tissue. And so sometimes that's a reflex for us if the patient has a small sample or you know we need an answer very, very quickly, or even in Asia where there's such a high proportion of EGFR mutant lung cancer patients that that's often their first step rather than NGS. But certainly, you know, the results can be quite complex. Our patient did get tested and her results returned and she did have an EGFR mutation, but it wasn't a classic mutation where we might offer osimertinib or a third generation kinase inhibitor. This was an exon 20 insertion, as you can see here. And so it's so important not to just call people EGFR positive, but to really have a good look at the result. So just as take-home points that I think everyone here in the room knows, you know, we really want biomarker testing before we start treatment. And so whatever interaction with your pathologist and genomics labs needs to happen to do that really needs to occur to optimize care. A long list now of alterations that we really need to survey before we start treatment and say that the patient has had complete testing. And of course, the type of testing matters, as do the results. So very important that we understand what we're looking for and that details matter. I'm going to introduce Dr. Spira, who's going to talk to us about how to manage our patient's exon 20 insertion. 
Okay, so here is a list of all the Exxon 20 insertions that you can see. And as you can see, quite complicated. There is a little bit of a hodgepodge of different mutations. And as you heard before, if you just look at a report and say you have an EGFR mutation, you have to be much more specific than that. The EGFR Exxon 20 insertions make up between 4 to 10% of the total patient population, and they're very unique, slightly different profile looking at the United States versus China. Overall estimate in the U.S., about 7,700 patients a year diagnosed in the United States. We'll talk a little bit now about the two major therapies. Both of these are now FDA approved. One is amivantamab, which is a bispecific antibody, as well as mobocert. On the left, we have amivantamab, and you can see it was originally come about for other reasons, thinking about how do you attack tumors with both EGFR and MET. So you can see, as I said, it has the two hats on there for binding both. So it's a dual EGFR-MET antibody, and it binds the extracellular portion of EGFR. Mobocertinib, same target, exon 20 insertions, but it's a small molecule. Amivantamab IV, mobocertinib oral because of that. It is chemically optimized from osimertinib to be more selective specifically for the exon 20 We'll talk a little bit now about the efficacy. So here's mobocertinib. As I mentioned, it's an oral irreversible exon 20 insertion inhibitor with an FDA approved dose of 160 milligrams given orally once a day. Approval study, overall response rate confirmed 28%, 35%. One is investigative, one is independent review. A slight difference is there. Median duration of response, keep this number in mind, 17.5 months. Median PFS, 7.3 months. And you can see the waterfall plot there as well. The dotted line represents partial responses there. So clearly an efficacious drug. This is the typical waterfall plot that oncologists get excited about. Major toxicities, for those of you who have given it, I'm sure will agree. GI, diarrhea, 91% any grade, about 21% grade three or higher. Rash, low number of QTC prolongation, but still notable. 25% of patients in this study had a dose reduction and 17% had treatment discontinuation. Talk now about amivantamab. Amivantamab is the EGFR met bispecific antibody. Overall response rate was 40% in the study. Both of these studies, patients had to have prior platinum therapy. Duration of response in this patient population was about 11 months, with a median progression-free survival of 8.3 months. You can see on the right, the similar waterfall plot, broken down here by where the mutations were. Most of these patients are in the red and had what's called a near-loop mutation. Not going to spend a lot of time talking about that today. It was referenced on one of the previous slides. Major side effects, infusion-related reactions. So 66% any grade, most commonly on cycle one, day one. For those of you who've given this, you kind of hope that your assistant is in the clinic today because pretty much a lot of patients react. Very few grade three. And the reason we say it's most commonly on cycle one, day one, it means after that, most patients are actually fine and have no issues getting it. Major side effects, rash, 86% any grade, but only 4% grade three. Paronychia, this takes us back to the days of berlatinib, for those of us old enough to remember. Lots of paronychia <laughs> and rash seen with that drug, similar here. Remember, this is a met by specific, so hypoalbuminemia and edema are commonly seen. I think, candidly, this is what's reported. I think in my practice, I see it a little bit more often than that. That can be somewhat of a problem in older patients, especially. 13% of patients had a dose reduction. Only 10% of patients had to discontinue the drug. We'll talk now about some newer ones coming down the pike. CLN081. It is a novel irreversible oral EGFR inhibitor. 
Again, Exxon 20 insertions as well. You can see the waterfall plot on the right and grossly not dramatically different than the other studies. Smaller studies here, this is still ongoing as we speak, looking at different dose levels. Let's just focus on the right-hand column here. 73% across all dose levels, 38% response rate, 57% stable disease, duration of response around 10 months. Again, smaller study, the study is still ongoing as we speak, so keep these numbers in mind. 80% of patients had a rash. Paranychia, 32% of patients, all grade, or some diarrhea and fatigue as well. The compound I like to call DZD908, Sunvazertinib. This is a relatively new name. This is another drug in development as well. Again, another EGFR Exxon 20 insertion drug. Again, a similar waterfall plot on the right. Again, the waterfall plot that oncologists like to see. Looking at two dose levels, we'll look at the combined cohort. 37% response rate in all comers. Disease control rate, 85%. Major side effects, diarrhea and rash as well. 57% of patients had diarrhea. 44% of patients had rash, as well as other side effects. Similar side effects across class to the other drugs. You can see the dose reduction and dose discontinuation rates at the bottom left. 6% of patients at all doses had a dose discontinuation. 8% at the 300 milligram dose where we have the most patients here. Clearly, with two approved drugs and several more coming down the pike, as you can see here, it's getting to be a little complicated. Lots of drugs here. So we talked about mobocertinib and amivantamab at the top two, both FDA approved right now. You can use some comparisons with response rates by blind independent central review. These two studies, again, approved drugs, have the most patients here, perhaps slightly higher with amivantamab. Again, we shouldn't be doing cross-trial comparisons, but of course, that's what we always do. Major side effects rash for MOBO, infusion-related reaction for amivantamab. Poziotinib, we didn't talk about a lot of slides today. It's also been very heavily studied, median progression-free survival four months, overall response rate 15%, slightly higher rash. We talked about Sunbo, we talked about CLN081. We did not talk a lot today about osimertinib. There is some data for high-dose osimertinib right now, given 160 milligrams PO daily. Overall response rate in a smaller study, 24%, with 9.6 months diarrhea in this patient population. And then lastly, two drugs in development as we speak, Blue451 and Auric114. These drugs are being designed as new generation drugs for two things, one hopefully less side effects and possibly more central nervous system penetration. We'll talk now about another case. 59-year-old patient comes to Dr. Sabari for a second opinion. After receiving carboplatin, pemetrexid, and pembrolizumab as frontline therapy, she has an EGFR exon 20 insertion on tissue testing. After nine months, she has progressive disease with new liver metastases and two new brain metastases. First yes. off, I mean, the question of Pembro in the frontline setting, we really even address that. I would not use Pembrolizumab in the frontline setting here and give a platinum doublet. And clearly, both amivantamab and mobocertinib do not have great CNS activity. So I would definitely radiate these lesions because obviously CNS is an important area for patients with morbidity and as well as mortality, unfortunately. So I agree with SRS to both lesions. And then I would use amivantamab. I feel the response rate is higher. I do think long-term, it's a better tolerated medicine, but you need to have a discussion with your patient. What are the major side effects that you usually see in AMI in your clinic? Yeah. So Amivanta, most common side effects I see about 70% of patients are going to have an infusion-related reaction on cycle one, day one. Again, if you are aware of the reaction, your staff is aware of the reaction, the patient is aware that the reaction is going to happen, it's usually grade one or two. 35, 40 minutes into the infusion, patients will tell us they have some flushing, some redness. I stopped the medication that day. There's no victory that day. Patients come back for cycle one, day two, and the rate of infusion reaction is around one to 2%. So I really try to explain that to patients. Now, if you don't stop the medicine, 
patients do have full-blown infusion reactions around 60 minutes. Have you seen any of these reactions in your clinic? They're not, not ideal. Yeah. And I think, you know, from my standpoint, one thing that I've always noticed is it only takes a little so they don't get a reaction the second day. So if patients are having a reaction, you know, they're older or they're a little bit anxious, I just say, you know, you have to get the rest of the dose. And what I find, even if you just get a little bit of that dose and they come back day two, they're fine. So don't feel pressed to give them that first dose that first day. For those of you who haven't given this drug a lot, there's a loading dose. So you give, I think, 350 yeah. milligrams the first day. And then depending on body weight, you give one of the 700 or 1050 the second day. So it's a very low dose the first day, but it really doesn't take a lot. And I'm still waiting for somebody to explain to me the biology of this because it's different. You know, a lot of the other drugs, you get a cumulative reaction sure. as well. Dr. Lyle, what are you thoughts about? What would you do? What would you do here? So I think, you know, I think not to speak for all of Canada, I think many of us give king therapy alone. I think there are some people who remain interested, especially in younger patients with heavy disease burden and offering checkpoint inhibition. I think I certainly don't recommend that. I recommend chemotherapy. What's reassuring is that patients in both programs had previously received immunotherapy. And I think it was the the Mobocertinib program that published data suggesting no increase in toxicities in patients who had prior IO. So I don't recommend first-line chemo IO. I recommend first-line chemo, but so far it appears to be safe. You know, I, I agree with CNS metastases. It's always a challenge. Everyone's always so tempted to put patients on OSA Mertinib. You know, I think the data from the Dutch study really suggests that that duration of response is short. It's about four or five months. And so, you know, if you're looking for response and duration, you want something longer. In Canada, Emivantamab is approved. Mobocertinib is not, but both are available through special programs. And so again, it becomes a discussion with patients. You know, you've got a higher response rate with Emivantamab, a lot of parking toxicity for downtown Toronto for my patients coming in weekly for a month and then every two weeks. But of course, you have to trade that off with, how did Dr. Bramer describe it? You have to take a tablet every day. You get the diarrhea every day. That's you sort of have to balance it and getting the right dose. So it is really a discussion. But I think many patients currently, certainly in Canada, receive amivantamab as second line if they can. You know, I think from my perspective, you raised some very good points. We talk about grade one and grade two toxicity, especially diarrhea. I think you often forget only it's grade two, but grade two diarrhea is seven, am I correct, seven bowel movements a day. So that's a real toxicity. And this is a chronic orally daily drug. So, you know, if you're on this for median duration of response, which is great of a year and a half round figures, chronic daily diarrhea of seven times a day is a very big deal and can be life altering for many of our patients. So it's not that easy. And I will say, you know, we look at that data and go, it's only grade two, but grade two, you know, that is a little bit troublesome obviously as well. What do you guys do about exon 20 insertion inhibitor resistance? And this is a loaded question. And I think we can preface by saying there's probably no right or wrong answer here right now. So what do you, I guess, what do you do after these drugs? Do you have any special thoughts? I mean, I think to really add to the data, I think just as we did with common AGFR mutations and, and third generation kinase inhibitor failures, we are trying to sort of biopsy these patients and roll them in xenograft studies, that sort of thing. Also clinical trials. I mean, the best data we've seen are from Mobocertinib resistance, where you do see, interestingly, T790M emergence. You see 797S. We've seen histologic transformation. We've seen MET amplification. And so it's very interesting that some of these mechanisms of resistance are common. So we are trying to look at it. Obviously, that's research. And then trying to stream patients into trials before we resort to things like docetaxel and single agent checkpoint inhibitors. I don't know. We've what about in New York? data on the sequencing, right, of these agents. Mm -hmm. So we are collecting now a multi-institution project looking at patients receive amivantamab first and then go on to mobile certainty or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Again, this is going to be really important data to better understand how these agents work. But currently I'm enrolling a patient you know, or in patients on a clinical trial. I worry about using, you know, MOBO post ami. I commonly use amivantamab in the first line setting. I worry about, you know, it covering the resistance, you know, mutations or pathos at least. 
Yeah. And, you know, we, a lot of good points right now. There is no data. And I believe on NCCM guidelines, it actually says if you get mobile, you can do AMI. You can, if you give AMI, you can do mobile. A little surprising because there's very limited data outside of clinical trial. I'm like you, Josh, I think, you know, at least mechanistically, I think if you get mobile, you're likely to have a mutation that's intrinsic that causes resistance. So I think you may get a response from amivantamab. However, I don't think you get it in the vice versa reaction. Again, that is a very unscientific analysis that yeah. I've heard people invoke. Not 100% sure. I think True. in some of the data that are out there, there and of course, it's anecdotes, right? They're, they're not a lot of data. But, you know, for example, we've had a case of a patient who was on chrysalis on amivantamab, then went on to mobocertinib and responded again. There are some, you know, in the sunbisertinib studies, patients who were amivantamab pretreated, who then went on to respond to the kinase inhibitor. So I think your approach of putting these people on a protocol so we can do it prospectively and report the data, that's really the best way. I didn't talk a lot today about the different mutations, duplications versus insertions. Do you think at all differently about one of these or the other, or do you just see them and give you a drug of choice? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there are over 100 different, you know, exon 20 insertion mutations now. So first off, look at your NGS reports, try to understand, you know, what mutation this is. You know, some of them occur near loop, far loop, you mentioned. I think the response rates do differ with some of the TKI. With amivantamib, it looks to be pretty balanced across the board. That being said, we don't really have any prospective data here to really define, you know, whether some insertion mutations react or respond better to certain agents. An area of active investigation. Great. Curious your thoughts on the patient with brain metastasis up front. We all said we were going to use gamma knife SRS on this patient. What is your, you know, equipoise for putting a patient on Auric 114 or Blue 451? What are your thoughts on those agents and maybe also some of the preclinical data there? There's an old analogy. If I can make a mouse into a human with a laser gun, I'd be great. I mean, all those drugs. So there's two drugs we talked about in clinical study right now, Blue 451 and the Auric compound. Both appear to be very promising. They've been designed to have specific CNS activity. And if you look at the preclinical data, they look great. I think we're a long way, obviously, from getting their reality fully support. Looking at these patients on clinical trials, we have to. These patients make me nervous, right? And these are the ones I watch very closely. I also say anecdotally, I've got a lot of leptomeningeal disease. You know, these are the patients that you can kind of, you know, off clinical study, you give them AMI, you give them chemo. They do really well. And it harkens back to the old days of when I used to give erlotinib. This, you had trouble getting the CNS met, you'd radiate them, and then they start having leptomeningeal disease. So I've had a few in my clinic, and I struggle with what to do with these, because then there's no right or wrong answer. But I think we have to be aggressive with our radiation, so lots of SRS. Really try and hold off whole brain. At least that's my practice. Yeah, I agree. And, but it, both of these studies, Blue 451 and Org 114, are enrolling patients with active, untreated CNS metastases. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there, there is, you know, data preclinically that there is response, yeah. but I agree with you. We need to see that. What about frontline? What would you do in the frontline setting? How do you move these agents that have, you know, maybe subpar, you know, response rates in the second line? How do you move them to the frontline? What, what's going on there? So I think those studies, at least the amivantamab study has accrued. We're waiting for those results. They're looking at amivantamab and chemo combinations right now. I think one of the criticisms of the second line setting is earlier in the day, I gave my little KRAS G12C talk. I think we were all excited about these drugs, but we're so used to response rates of osimertinib and electinib that we see in those specifically targeted mutations to say, hey, this is great, but why isn't it as good as the other ones? So I think there's been a lot of hesitancy to move these as single agent in the front lines. I think one of the initial things I think was 26% between the two of them, something like that. People said they would give these drugs in the first line. I'm a firm believer in either clinical trial or following the labeling. Not that there's anything wrong with what those people said. It'll be interesting to see how we combine those two. I believe MOBO is being compared versus chemotherapy That because I think some of the tolerability issues. I think amivantamab was combined with chemotherapy. That's right. No, so right. plug for both of those studies. If you have them open and available, this is an opportunity to understand how these therapies work in the frontline setting. So MOBO certain versus chemotherapy, randomized phase three. There's also that randomized phase three, a Papillon trial, 
of Thank chemotherapy you. plus amivantamab versus chemotherapy alone. And I think those would be important studies to help you know guide the next line of therapies. I guess the other point is that as kinase inhibitor chemistry improves, you know, will sunbazertinib be a better drug with a much higher response rate? We heard about a 60% response rate at some of the more recent meetings. Could these with higher, less, potentially less toxicity and higher activity, could these be the agents we move forward? So I guess yeah. time will tell. Yeah. And, and I will say, I mean, there's a little bit of nihilism though. I mean, I remember when Posiatinib's data was first proposed, it was a study of 20 patients and the response rate was 70 plus percent. And I kind of glossed over my slide when we finally got all the data in a real scenario that dropped from 75 to 17 percent. So I hear you about the SunVote data, but I'm always waiting to get those larger numbers and bigger studies. Perhaps it's a, I'm a little it's bit a great cheated. point, right? If you look even at MobiCertinib data, it was you know, much higher initially, 43 percent came down over time, mostly due to tox. Think about some of these newer inhibitors that might be cleaner. We yep. may be able to you know, have sort of better durability there. And now my friend and colleague, Dr. Josh Shabari. Thank you to the organizers and Natasha and Alex for having me. So we'll jump into another case here. So this is a 62-year-old male, former light smoker, incidentally found to have a right-sided lung mass on a coronary calcium scan. We're seeing more and more of this, right? Patients going in, incidentally identifying an early tumor. Staging showed no mediastinal involvement and no distant disease. Patient had a PET CT, underwent a right upper lobe lobectomy, and was found to have a 5-centimeter stage 2A lung adenocarcinoma. Correctly uh, got four cycles of adjuvant cisplatin and pemetrexid. And lo and behold, on NGS testing, we identified an EGFR exon 19 deletion. So let's jump into the osimertinib in the adjuvant setting. So if you don't know this study, you've been living under a rock, right? This is the ADORA trial. And this is a randomized phase three double-blind trial taking patients with the old stage 1B, now the new stage 2, to 3A non-small cell lung cancer. Patients were allowed to get adjuvant chemo, but not all patients did. And these were patients who were optimally resected and then randomized post-therapy, post-chemotherapy, randomized one-to-one to get osimertinib at 80 milligrams versus placebo. And very important here, treatment was for three years and the primary endpoint was disease-free survival, right? So we don't really have full overall survival, which is a secondary endpoint here. So this was the update that we saw at ESMO. And I mean, we look at a lot of these curves in our clinical practice. This is about as impressive as it gets. You can drive two or three Mack trucks through the separation here, right? So median disease-free survival hazard ratio here 0.23. Now, even when you look at subsets of patients, the stage one patient population, the 1B or the now two, also has ratios in that range. Clearly, this is more beneficial in the stage three patient population because they have higher rates of recurrence. Now, we also saw updated data for CNS, disease-free survival, in this patient population. We know that recurrence of disease in the brain is a real problem in patients with EGFR mutant cancers. One major criticism of the ADORA trial was that upfront MRI brain staging was not required. So are we just treating micrometastatic disease with our adjuvant therapy, or are we actually delaying CNS recurrence? And you know, I'll tell you that if you look out to three years here, 36 months, it's a pretty impressive curve for CNS recurrence by DFS. Thereafter, you do see it drop a little bit, but remember, that's when patients stop the osimertinib. So hazard ratio for CNS-DFS, 0.24 in this patient population. 
The ADORA-2 study is an ongoing study, and this is looking at patients with even smaller tumors. These are stage 1A patients, right? These are patients who are not even offering adjuvant chemotherapy, one, two centimeter tumors. These patients are also randomized now one-to-one in a 380-patient trial of adjuvant osimertinib for three years versus placebo. So again, these patients are stratified by risk based on size of tumor and other high-risk features like lymphovascular invasion. Same primary endpoints as the ADORA trial. And now looking at the neoadjuvant space, the neoadora, and obviously multiple now approvals for adjuvant therapy, as well as a new approval for neoadjuvant therapy, right? Checkmate 816 nivolumab plus chemotherapy, this is to look specifically at the EGFR mutant population. Is there benefit in giving osimertinib before resection? And you can imagine it could downstage the tumor. It could also treat micrometastatic disease up front. So a large study, 351 patients, randomized one to one to one to placebo plus chemo to osi plus chemo versus osimertinib. So this is truly a double blind study. And we look forward to seeing the results. Patients will then get resected and the endpoint being major path response as well as path CR rate. I also want to talk about other neoadjuvant strategies, the LCMC4, which you've heard quite a bit already at this conference. These are neoadjuvant trials, clearly including the EGFR targeted therapy we just talked about, but there is a major push in the targeted therapy space across all driver alterations to look at these therapies in the neoadjuvant setting. Adjuvant therapy, importantly, is allowed in these studies and it's physician choice. So I'm curious in your patient population, Alex, patient who has a stage two non-small cell lung cancer with an EGFR exon 19 deletion, that patient is resected. They've been on adjuvant osimertinib, as everybody here clearly stated, and they're at three years. What are you doing? I follow the study. I mean, I think, you know, studies are done for a reason. I try and follow it. Uh, it's one of these things that I think is highly debated over time. I'm old enough to remember there was, a, you know, the best analogy I think we have is in the world of gastrointestinal stromal tumors. And I think that's what people often quote. Do we think people need longer and we're just kicking the can down the road by doing it? Do you really need three years? I mean, this is three years of an oral therapy that is not without a little bit of toxicity and expense and nobody knows the right answer. You know, the three years was somewhat picked arbitrarily, but I follow the clinical study right now. I mean, I would love to do a study of one versus three versus five. Five is probably a very long time. I do think we're kicking the can down the stage. However, by the same token, even by kicking the can, you're having improvement as well, right? And these patients are doing well. They're not progressing, not getting CNS metastases. So even if you're just kicking the can, I think that is a very positive signal. So Natasha, very straight question, but provocative. Are we curing patients with adjuvant osibertinib? Or as Alex mentions, are you kicking the can down the road? So I think that the concern really has been the way those curves come together, including in the CNS after the three-year mark. And so I think the concern really is that we're delaying metastatic disease, which may still be helpful, you know, perhaps especially in the CNS. My colleague, Dr. Penny Bradbury, was talking about that the other day. And, you know, I think some of what we heard this morning talking about drug-tolerant persister cells suggests to me that you need something else, be it chemotherapy or STAT3 inhibitors or something else to kind of help lead to cure and eradicate those clones. So, you know, we routinely recommend adjuvant chemotherapy for these patients. I know there's a lot of data about that. I'm sure Ignatius isn't in the audience, but Ignatius sort of firmly believes people don't need chemotherapy. But, you know, just to remind people that 
in this trial, it's 1B to 3, but it's using the older staging system. So this is actually stage 2 and stage 3. We would normally recommend adjuvant therapy. And so I really think it needs to be discussed with all patients because we know that improves survival. We know that potentially contributes to cure. Whereas if you remove that in the randomized trial of EGFR inhibitors, you improve disease-free survival, but you don't improve overall survival. So I think, you know, what's great about this trial was patients were encouraged to have it. And then whether they did or they didn't, they then went on to adjuvant TKI. But I would probably more inclined, be more inclined to treat for longer. But having said that, you know, is this a bit like small cell? If we did regular MRIs every three months, would we be able to find tiny lesions and then start the osomeritinib then? And so this trade-off of toxicities versus relapse. And it's not just toxicity. I mean, at some point we have to be responsible financially, right? Sure. I mean, these are expensive drugs. And if I was the government or the insurance company, I'd say, what does the data show me? And you have lots of great ideas. And let's say, well, where the data that that's going to help everything. And why stop at five? I mean, if you had stage 3B cancer and you had a 10 centimeter tumor and 10 positive nodes and you did surgery on them, to me, it's got a 99% chance of recurrence. And, you know, you can make an argument to continue indefinitely, but at some point you have to like, cut it or not. And I mean, the only comment is you mentioned chemotherapy. I give a lot more chemotherapy at tumor board than I do in real life. You know, you look at these patients and I remember when the IL data, which is, I think, the first real study that found the benefit of chemotherapy, you know, the stage 1B back then, which is four centimeters, about a four to five percent improvement in outcomes. And to me, especially in older population, I tend to shy away from that. Remember with Ignatius Al, as you said, who doesn't really do it. But, I, you know, you look at the numbers, you look at the patient in front of you. So I tend to shy away from them unless they're, you know, a 3A or 3B, much higher stage. But again, that's my own personal opinion. And I think in the Adura study, what was it, only 50 percent of patients got chemo? Is that about the right number? Yeah. So patients that were higher stage got higher rates of chemotherapy. And, but it, it does worry me. I mean, I, I'm sort of a, on your team here, Natasha. I do give my patients adjuvant chemo. We have true OS data, right? We have to look at the data that we currently have. We don't have OS data yet for osimertinib. So I think by giving them three years of osimertinib patients without getting adjuvant chemo, that's sort of limiting them. So let's move on. Some key points just to wrap up. Osimertinib, again, FDA approved in the adjuvant therapy setting for patients with stage 1B or now the stage 2 in the 8th edition to stage 3A resectable disease. A lot of people ask me, what about patients who have stage 3B or 3C who get concurrent chemotherapy and radiation? Should I give them durvalumab, which is a PDL one inhibitor, or should I give them osimertinib if they're EGFR mutant? That study is currently ongoing, the, the Laura trial, and we look forward to seeing that uh, result. I'm using off-label in that setting, osimertinib, but again, we need to see the data moving forward. Eligible patients should be offered adjuvant chemo, unless you're Ignatius O, or clearly I learned tonight, Alex, who gives a lot of chemo at tumor board, but not in clinical practice, right? And then patients who decline or are not eligible for chemotherapy definitely should still be offered adjuvant osimertinib. So let's move on to addressing the development of resistance in EGFR-targeted therapies. And, you know, we didn't ask this, right? But a lot of patients with early-stage disease are getting osimertinib now. Where are we going to be in three years and five years from today? So the same patient that I just presented to you is on osimertinib for 12 months. And unfortunately, upon routine interval imaging, and I routinely get scans every three months. Some people argue for six. I do image the CNS in these patients every six months. Curious what you're doing in clinical practice, brain-wise? I do it about annually. So, I mean, I think in the absence of evidence, it's hard for me to advocate, but I think we're all worried about this as, as a site of disease. When they're autosomertinib, I worry a little bit less than if they're not, but I'd probably do it mm -hmm. annually. You know, there's no evidence for that 
it's probably not best practice. But you know, I think insurance payers are pushing back all the time. It also depends. I mean, if somebody has brain metastasis at the beginning, then I get it more often as well. The other reality is most of the time when they progress in the CNS, they're not having overt progression in the right. CNS. They don't go from nothing to a three centimeter brain metastasis. Agreed. So I feel comfortable with that as well, clearly following symptoms. I mean, as sadly, the other thing, as good as these drugs are, you know, the median duration of response is still in the 12 to 18 month range, depending on which mutation you have, et cetera. So you know, you're still only talking about a year and a half. Do you ablate all disease in these patients? Yeah. I think what I find, you find in these patients, two things. One is OC is a great drug, number one. Two is it's very well tolerated. Three is, you know, once a patient hasn't gotten chemo, and if you take out the clinical trial consideration, which is while we really are doing liquid biopsies by and large, you are talking about chemo's next line. I often find that patients are super reluctant to go on to chemotherapy. And even if you only buy a couple more months on this before they have systemic progression, you can do a little bit of oligo radiation. They actually do well as well by leaving the same agent. Yeah, I would agree with small volume disease or local areas of disease, but more than three or five sites, or, you know, some people say even one site of disease, I think it's a, not a great approach to go locally in these patients here. Natasha, why is it important in this patient to potentially get that biopsy? I mean, I think in a patient like this with such diffuse disease, you always worry about small cell transformation or histologic transformation. And I think, you know, increasingly our first stop in Canada, if we can, to rule out small cell is that's how we justify a biopsy. The challenge, of course, is not everyone can have one, can't get one fast enough necessarily before you need to start chemotherapy in a patient like this. And so then liquid biopsy is often a great recourse when our government figures out that they should pay for it. Yeah, I agree. And, and I'm like you, Alex, I talk a lot about rebiopsy and I do it all the time on tumor board, but in clinical practice, patients are stable and feeling all right. If they have rapid disease progression like this patient, I do agree with getting a biopsy. The, the only problem though is, I, I don't know how it's like at NYU or it is in Canada, but by the time you order a biopsy, you do that and get the results in another three or four weeks. Not Princess Margaret, it's very quick, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, those are the ones you, you really want the biopsy because you're looking for the small cell right. transformation. And those are the ones that you say almost can't wait. Yeah, I think we all know how to agree the wheels at our centers, right? If there's something that you really want done, you can push on a lot of levers. So let's talk a little bit about this sort of entity. So this is this patient we just talked about. 12 months on therapy with osimertinib develops a EGFR C797S resistance mutation. We heard this morning that these are not common, maybe 10, maybe 15% of the population, depending on what data sets you look at, clearly still has the EGFR exon 19 deletion as the driver alteration. So what do you do or how do you evaluate the patient with suspected progression on osimertinib? So clearly you need to restage these patients. I obtain a full CT cap or potentially PET, depending on what we're looking for. I do image the brain again, because I want to understand where I am before getting started. And you mentioned this already, Alex, oligo progression of disease. You can definitely do local therapy and continue the osimertinib, but multifocal progression of disease, you really want to understand the resistance alterations and mechanisms to consider how your next lines or what you your next lines will be. So there are many different types of resistance mutations. T790M was quite prevalent, right? 60, 70% of patients. We don't have one alteration now that guides resistance, right? So think about the resistance alterations that we now see in clinical practice. You can have mutations in the drug target that inhibit impact drug binding. So point mutations in EGFR, like we just mentioned, C797S. You can have bypass signaling, right? Metaamplification, for example, or you can have mutations in downstream effectors, you know, in the MAP kinase pathway. So really important to understand what you're dealing with in the resistance mutation setting. Are you all starting just chemotherapy because it's too complicated or are you thinking about trials in that setting? 
There are a lot of drugs, and without talking about off-label use right now, there's a lot of drugs of, I don't want to say imminent approval, but have really shown a benefit. There's a lot of drugs now. You talk about C797S, you can talk about CMET. There's a lot of things out there that you can actually do something about, and there's plenty of data to say that it works. I think we're all excited because I would anticipate in the next 24 months, there'll probably be one or two new drugs out there, and we're at the point where you can see them. Yeah. Like You can see them, you just can't get them a standard of care. So really getting your patients on clinical trials here and looking for those mutations. Agreed. And a very exciting time for therapies that are coming down the pike. And Natasha, you mentioned earlier state transformation, small cell transformation or squame transformation. And this occurs five to 10% of the time. So just as similar rates to C797S, we see histologic transformation. So keep your eyes out for that. Unfortunately, if you do have histologic transformation, thinking about the chemotherapy that is, you know, sort of approved for those histologies is important. I just really want to echo Alex's sentiment here that it's an exciting time. We have lots of different therapeutic options, and broadly, we have these on-target mechanisms or therapies that target on-target mechanisms. C797S, for example, we heard today a question of a patient with a G724S or L718V or EGFR amplification. These occur broadly about 15% of the time in patients, and you can target these with fourth-generation EGFR inhibitors, and there are many in development off-target are a little bit more difficult to target. And, and I think that's why we think about more broad strategies or broad approaches. Uh, if you have a MET alteration, for example, curious, are you moving more towards a MET TKI plus an EGFR inhibitor? Or are you thinking more of a bispecific or maybe even a, an ADC approach down the line? Pick one. If you paid attention to my talk, Dr. Sabari, I did mention amivantamab, which has trials and it's a MET bispecific right. right now. So it hits EGFR and MET. And I do know people that have gotten off-label use for that. But there's a certainly at least one or two or three studies right now with OC plus an ADC that targets MET, OC plus a TKI that targets MET. Again, we should never advocate for true off-label use, but there are certainly things that are not, we've all done crazy things and these things are not crazy to do even with off-label use. So what use I'm hearing well. is put your patient on a trial if available to you. Natasha, just broadly thinking though, what is your approach? Is it to target the resistance mutation? For example, if someone has a point mutation, are you targeting that? Or let's say they have a RET fusion. Are you giving selpercatinib off-label with a TKI or are you targeting more broadly with a, a broad approach? So I think it's a great question. And, you know, someone said to me earlier today that the plural of anecdote is not data, but it's really challenging in this space because everything seems to be based on case reports. So for example, I had a patient who had an emergent BRAF B600B. He was a pharmacist. He's well-connected. He has a cousin who's an oncologist in New York and Austin. And so I was getting lots of advice. And in the end, you know, we had to do something off-label. But in Canada, it's very challenging. You know, we need data. We need good evidence to support the cost of these new drugs. So it's been a challenge for us. You know, I think basket trials would be very helpful in this space, especially for countries like Canada and other managed care systems. And, you know, I'm really torn. You know, the MET inhibitors plus ongoing TKI, the cutoff seems to be, you know, 10 copy numbers or 10 copies. So we, instead of, you know, five or less than five, whereas maybe these METs and, you know, externally targeting agents, you could use just with expression. And so I think we sort of need to figure out who needs what even in that space, you know, sort of test the whole concept. If you have an emergent fusion, we will add drugs versus if you have something completely different, we'll give you patrutamab or, you know, one of the trope 2 inhibitors or something like that. So we probably do need to do some randomized comparisons, but we could probably be a bit smarter about the approach, you know, going forward to get these things funded or accepted and understand who does better with which approach. Yeah. But that, I think that's a ways off. Couldn't agree more. And again, an exciting space with lots of opportunities.
You know, one drug I have to mention, I think it's a really exciting opportunity. We saw about a 39% response rate for patritumab, deruxetecan, it's a HER3 ADC. And why HER3 for EGFR mutant patients? HER3 is overexpressed in EGFR mutant. And again, we're not selecting patients by HER3, but 39% response rate in a refractory patient population is quite exciting. 8.2 months median PFS. We're now looking at this in the frontline setting in combination with osimertinib. So a lot of data hopefully to come out in the next few years years. So diagnosis of molecular resistance is increasingly important. Make sure that you don't have any small cell transformation or squamous transformation. Liquid biopsy more accessible than tissue. Um, and then clearly, if all else fails in the targeted therapy space, chemotherapy is quite effective in this patient population. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, to Dr. Leo, to close it out. Great. Thank you so much. I know that everyone in this room knows that for the uncommon mutations, you know, currently afatinib is most widely approved. But increasingly, you know, we're learning that there are differences, for example, exon 18 or exon 20 alterations that fit into these categories probably respond better to second generation kinase inhibitors as opposed to osimertinib with L861Q, even though that's not yet approved. And we also heard earlier today about some of the structural data for this. So what I'm going to do is we're just going to move to the very end and the question and answer section. And we do have some questions from the, uh, we'll ask if anybody has questions here or things that they want to add, please come up or put your hands up. Yes. Going back to the scenario where let's say it was out in the community that an Exxon 20 insertion got Carbo, Pem, and Pembro. And now they've progressed, and you're thinking about MOBO and Levantinab. There was a study, a great study by Dr. Hellman that showed with OC that after you've got a new checkpoint inhibitor, for the next three months, you're at high risk for immune-related adverse events if you start OC. So in this situation with MOBO or with Levantinab, would you want to wash out Hembro if you're going to start the TKI next, or do you think it's what we're seeing with Osimertinib? Is it on-target effective EGFR in the yeah, so we looked at that in the amivantinib population. If I remember the number correctly, it was 40-something, 40 49% or so got immunotherapy. And there was no increased rate of pneumonitis, I think, specifically we looked at. But for other adverse, immune-related adverse events, I don't know of any prospective data that has been collected. I don't have as much experience with mobocertinib, but I don't wait three-month washout with pembrolizumab followed by OSI, the third-generation EGFR-TK. I do clearly wait a two- to three-month. Curious what you guys are doing. I think the mobile data are the same. You know, there were varying intervals, but patients did not require a washout. And there was actually, the only patient who got pneumonitis was a patient who got chemo alone first. So there was no increase in significant immune-related adverse events. So I don't wait for a washout, but most of my patients, you know, they need to start in a hurry. So just like with everything else, KRAS inhibitors, MET inhibitors, everything else, you know, your patients are always at risk. So just be very watchful, keep an eye on their transaminases, caution them about pneumonitis. But I, I don't usually wait no, I agree. I mean, it's a very different scenario because they can't wait. That in the situation, you have a choice of first line or second line, but here they've progressed. What else are you going to do? You know, docetaxel is not really a viable option. Even if there was, I think you'd be forced to try and do it and cross your fingers. Great. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming and for all of our, our online audience as well. There's so many exciting options for this growing population of our patients. You know, they're living longer and better with many more new exciting options to come. So with that, I want to thank everyone. Thank you so much. And thanks to our great faculty team and the organizers. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. 
download materials, and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DCG 860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals, USA Incorporated.